Good evening. I'm glad to be back here with you again tonight. I hope you're glad to be back. We have an interesting thing that we're talking about. The history of the Christian church from AD 70 until today. You know, this series is different than most series that we hear in gospel meetings because, you know, usually we start with the theology and we go to history to find examples of that theology and examples of the outworkings of God in this world. But in this series, what we're doing is we're looking at the history and we're working backward from the history into the theology that we find in Scripture. Now, when I say theology, I just mean the study of God and His Word. And this whole series is really about what happens when God's people obey Him and what happens when they disobey Him and how that works itself out in the world that we live in and the history that has produced the world that we're in today. Now, we talked last night about the period of persecuted Christianity from 70 A.D. to 312 A.D. And this was a period of time when the church was persecuted, but they were primarily a pure church. There was a lot of purity. Now, there were some heresies, and there were individual congregations that had problems. There have always been that since the founding of the church and even before. Yet, what we found out is that under persecution, the church grew tremendously. And it had a tremendous impact on the world around. We found out that there were four things that really typified this period of time. One was the intense persecution that these Christians suffered under. And remember we talked about what made them so distinctive, or one of the things that made them so distinctive, is that Christians under persecution died well. Christians died in a way no one had ever seen people die with dignity and confidence. History is filled with story after story. In fact, if you want some reading that will keep you up at night, there's a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. Get that and read it. It'll keep you awake at night. It's stories of people who were martyred and tortured for the faith that they had in Jesus Christ. And story after story about people as they were being burned to death, dying, singing praises to God as they died for their Savior. What a glorious thing. We learned also about how this fed the spread of Christianity and that in a matter of 250 years it spread throughout all of the known world. We learned about the canon of Christian scripture and the need for that because of certain heresies that were arising. And then we also learned that this period of time held the arisal of the clergy. Remember, we talked about the fact that under persecution, some people would give up their faith, and then they would want to come back, and that was a huge problem in the church. I mean, if somebody denies Jesus when they're being persecuted, do we let them back in the church later? That's not as easy a question as it would seem to us as we sit here without serious persecution in our lives. And that fed ultimately the growth of this next period of time that we call imperial Christianity. And we call it imperial Christianity because there is a fundamental change in the leadership structure 
of Christ's church here on earth. Now, there was no change in the biblical structure. There was no change in what God required and what God taught, but there was a change in the function of the way people honestly did not follow or departed from what the Scriptures specifically teach us. And this begins in the time of 312 A.D. Now, let me ask you a question as we get involved in this. Who's the head of the church? Who do you believe the head of the church is? What about those guys? Anyone know who that is? That's uh, Joel Osteen on your left and T.D. Jakes on your right. I used to, when I first put this together, I had Billy Graham up there, but he's dead now, so we know he's not the head of the church. T.D. Jakes, they say, is the new Billy Graham taking over. I don't know. You think these guys are the head of the church? They've got big followings. T.D. Jakes has Potter's House Church there in Dallas. Biggest church in Dallas. Huge. Joel Osteen has the biggest church in the United States. 50,000 people a week go to his church. 50,000. Is Pampa 50,000? <laughs> More people than live in Pampa go to his church every week. Are they the head of the church? No. They're not the head of the church. Well, you know, a few years ago, I got to be over in England... You know who's the head of the church in England? King Charles now. It was the queen for 900 years or however long she lived. Is Charles the head of the church? Is he? Of course not. We know better than that. What about these two guys? You know who those are? That's Pope Francis on the left. And that is, I've got it in my notes, I can't call his name. It is Patriarch, Ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew. He's the head of the Orthodox Catholic Church, and he's the head of the Roman Catholic Church. Are these guys heads of the church? Are they in charge? No. What about these guys? I asked them for that picture today. They didn't know what I was up to, did they? <laughs> Are they the head of the church? No. Who's the head of the church? What about this? That sin to chill up your spine? Can you imagine if Joseph Biden had been head of the church for the last three years? What kind of a mess would we be in today? Or before that, can you imagine if Donald Trump had been the head of the church? What kind of a ridiculous mess with it? We know better than that. We know that's not the way it ought to be. We know that's not biblical, right? We know what Jesus said in Scripture. The Bible says, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him, that's Christ, from the dead, and gave him, that's Christ, to be the head over all things to the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Amen? Jesus Christ is the only head of the church. But in this period of time, on earth, that changed. On earth, there was a man who took headship of, quote-unquote, the Christian church. And, you know, many things that change through history, they take generations. It takes sometimes centuries for small incremental changes. But this change didn't happen that way. This change was a dramatic change, which we will talk about. There were many, many Roman emperors in the early years of the Roman Empire. And the way the leadership of the Roman Empire worked was a lot like the mafia. 
when a guy who was emperor died, his son did not take over the empire. Whoever took over the empire was whoever was the biggest and baddest and meanest and could kill everyone else who wanted to rule. It worked just like that. And there was a fight to see who was going to rule. And when you have a country or a nation, a big organization that's ruled that way, it, you know, whoever leads may not be a good guy. A lot of times it's bad guys that rule. And you end up with sometimes crazy people who are in charge. A couple of the crazy Roman emperors were these guys. There was Commodus. Now, Commodus thought he was Hercules. He dressed like Hercules and carried a club and talked to himself as he walked all around. He would have sick and injured people put in the Colosseum, and he'd go out and club them to death with his club. But he'd only fight sick and injured people. He was crazy. This other guy right here, Elagabalus, I'm probably saying that wrong, but however you say his name, this guy was a transvestite that had a pet rock that he worshipped. And he was the leader of the most powerful nation in the world at that time, controlled much of the world. They had a lot of crazy people. The last emperor that had an official position of persecuting Christianity was this guy. His name was Diocletian. And it was the official policy of the Roman Empire while he was, was Caesar of the Roman Empire that they would persecute Christians. This guy right here, that's a statue of him, he tortured and put to death thousands of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, I want to tell you, during the period of time when the church was persecuted, you would have had a lot in common with those Christians other than the persecution. You would have felt very comfortable worshiping with them because they worshiped the way you worship. They would have felt very comfortable worshiping with you, but that's changing. That's going to change because after this man Diocletian, and they've tried and tried and tried and tried to stamp out Christianity, there's a new guy who comes on the scene who is the Caesar. His name is Galerius. And Galerius was going to change the way that the Roman Empire dealt with Christians. Now, Jesus had said many years ago, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So what he says here is that this persecution is something that ought to be expected. Now, have any of you heard any lessons in the last year or two about persecution? Sermons at church? Most of us have. If you haven't, you will. Because I believe, maybe I'm wrong, but I believe persecution's coming. I believe persecution's coming in America. I believe they are aligning things politically to persecute the church over issues like LGBTQ plus and things like that. And I believe there's going to be some persecution. That shouldn't surprise us. In fact, after what Jesus said, the truth is we should be surprised if we're not persecuted. Right? But that's not our experience. I grew up here in America. And here in America, you just don't get persecuted for being a Christian, usually. These people did. 
But it changes with this guy named Galerius. Galerius issues an edict of toleration, and his reasoning was this. He said, you know what? We have been trying and trying and trying to stamp out Christianity. And we've persecuted them, we've murdered them, we've tortured them, and all it's doing is like stomping on a fire and just spreading the flame. It hadn't done any good. So we are officially going to begin to tolerate Christians. Now, let me ask you, if, you, if in the United States, since the founding of the United States, if they had been murdering and torturing Christians, and we had a president that came along and said, you know what, folks, we're going to quit persecuting Christians, would you think that was a good thing? I would be a happy camper. <laughs> I would be joyful. We would be dancing in the streets, wouldn't we? Greatest thing that ever happened. But I tell you what's going to happen as a result of this edict that he gives. And that is there's going to be a combining of church and state. Now in America we have an official separation of church and state, right? Where there is no, supposedly no joining or no combining of church and state. You know, that's, that's been the way it's always been with God's people. There's always been a separation, even back in Israel. The Levites were the, the religious leaders of Israel, but the tribe of Judah was the political leader of Israel. There's always been that separation, but it's going to change. And when it changes, as I said, this is going to be a dramatic change. And it's going to be the kind of change that happens not over centuries, but it happens with one man and one night and one vision that he believes he sees. Galerius dies. And when Galerius dies, there are two generals who are fighting for control of the Roman Empire. Two guys. These guys are right here. There's pictures of them. One guy's named Maxentius. The other guy's named Constantine. Now, you may have never heard of Maxentius before. But Maxentius was a general who was fighting for control of the Roman Empire, and he wanted to become Caesar. He wanted to be the one with the power. So did this guy named Constantine. And they were going to fight in this battle, bring their soldiers together in this one winner-take-all battle, and it was going to happen at this place. You can still go over and see this. It's called the Milvian Bridge, just outside of Rome. And it, this battle happened October the 28th, 312 A.D. And if you were a betting man, you would have placed your money on Maxentius. Because he had an army of 170,000 soldiers. That's a big army. Constantine came against him with an army of 40,000 soldiers. Now who would you bet on? Well, you'd bet on Maxentius, wouldn't you? The night before the battle, Constantine, for the rest of his life, told the story that he saw a vision in the sky. And in the sky, in this vision, he saw a cross floating in the sky. And there with that cross were these words, In hoc signo vincit, which mean, In this sign you shall conquer. 
And he took that to be a vision from the Christian God. Now, his mother was a Christian. And he took that to be a sign from the Christian God that he was going to give him victory in this battle. And so he had all of his soldiers paint their shields with this, the Cairo, which are the first two letters in Latin of the name of Christ. And he had them paint that on their shields. And when they went into battle the next day at the Milvian Bridge against Maxentius and his hordes of soldiers, guess who won that battle? Constantine won. And when he won, and Maxentius died during the battle, Constantine was now the Caesar of Rome. You might say, well, that's an interesting story, but what does that have to do with Christianity? What on earth, other than he thinks he saw a vision in the sky, and you may go, I don't think he saw a vision. I don't know what he saw. I don't know either. I know that he believed he saw a vision, and he believed that the Christian God gave him that victory, and he declared in the Edict of Milan that not only were we going to tolerate Christians, but actually Christianity was going to be favored and the official religion of the Roman Empire. Boom. Just like that. Now once again, let me ask you. They've been killing Christians for hundreds of years, and now all of a sudden, not only are we not going to persecute them, it's the official religion of America. Are we dancing in the streets? Are we happy? Woo! Hallelujah! God has shown Himself powerful. He has proven He's God, right? Isn't that what people would be saying? I want to tell you that this is one of the worst things that ever happened in the history of the church. I say, really? You know, Constantine did some wonderful things. He did some good things. You say, will we meet this guy in heaven? I don't know. I don't have any idea. I know this. I know he was baptized. He was baptized into Jesus Christ. And I know the man had some integrity because I know from the day he was baptized... Until the day he died, he refused to ever wear royal purple again because he said Jesus is the only king. He was buried in his baptismal robes. Now that's pretty impressive to me that he did that. You know, another thing that he did is he returned all the stolen property. You know, Diocletian would go in, find a group of Christians, kill them, take all their stuff and put it in the public treasury. Constantine returned it all. He said, here, let's give it back. Let's give it back to the Christians. It was wrong for us to ever take it in the first place. Let's give it back. Would you think that was a good thing? I think that's a wonderful thing that he did. He ended crucifixion in the gladiators. He said, crucifixion is offensive to Christians. Our Christ, our Savior was crucified, and we're not going to do that anymore. And he stopped it. And it's not been a common mode of death anywhere in the world since then. And he stopped the gladiator games. He said, that's offensive. It's evil. And there haven't been gladiator games in the Colosseum since Constantine. Are those good things that he did? Yes, those are very good things. He gave tax breaks and built church buildings for churches. Now, I like tax breaks, don't you? <laughs> 
Tax breaks are a good thing. He gave tax breaks to churches. Another thing he did is he made Sundays a holiday. You know, up until this, a lot of times people say, now don't you take a job that you'll have to work on Sunday. That's a very American 20th century kind of thing. You know, back when this happened, back when these guys lived, you didn't have a choice, especially if you were a slave. You worked on Sunday. If you worship God, many of the New Testament day Christians, they would meet before sunup because they had to go to work. And so they met and worshiped early in the morning before sunup. He made Sunday a holiday. Do you get Sundays off? Now, it's not as common now as it used to be. But the world I grew up in, they had the blue laws, they called them, and pretty much everything was closed on Sunday. That's a result of things Constantine did. He did a lot of good things, but there were also some bad things that came from Constantine. One is that he centralized absolute power in one man. As I said, all through history, there had been a division of political power and religious power. But with Constantine, that was centralized into one man. You know, when you read in Scripture about service and about leadership, we have a term, and maybe you've heard the term servant leadership. Have you ever heard that term? Servant leadership, how leaders are to be servants. Okay? All through this time, remember we talked about Polycarp and we talked about Irenaeus and uh, Ignatius and a lot of these people who were slaughtered for their faith, but they were elders in churches. Up until this time, leadership in the church of Christ, in His church, leadership was a very dangerous thing. It was a position of suffering and a position of service. But that changed with Constantine. Now... Leadership in the Christian church was a position of power and a position of money. Now here's what happens. When you take something that in order for someone to do it, they have to suffer and it costs them dearly and they have to be a servant, a certain kind of people aspire to that type of a job. But when you change the job and it's a job where you can line your pockets and you get to boss other people around and you get your way about everything, you got a different type of people who look for that kind of a job, right? We recognize that. That's what happened here in this period of time. Another thing that he did was he began to teach and he began to promote the idea that the kingdom of God was Rome. Because now it's a Christian kingdom, right? And we know that the kingdom of God, Jesus came to establish His kingdom and been prophesied by Daniel. And the kingdom is here now and it's Rome and we rule the world. This is a very, very dangerous idea that's going to cause a tremendous amount of suffering and heartache for the true people of God throughout history. And it's going to plunge the world into utter darkness for a thousand years. And there was a change in church government. It began to reflect the government of the Roman Empire, the organizational structure of Rome. Another thing he did that made an effect on Christianity was that he separated the capital. He formed a second capital, Constantinople, named after himself, Constantinople, which today is Istanbul, over in Turkey. And so there was now a western capital 
and an eastern capital. And he did that for a lot of practical reasons, but the, the result of this was that you had a separation of this Roman Empire now, and you had a kingdom in the east and a kingdom in the west, and ultimately in 1054, the Roman Empire is going to split into two empires, and it's this eastern empire that is going to affect Christianity and us and the world that we live in. And I want to tell you, some of these decisions that he made cost the church dearly for centuries. In fact, the truth is we still today live with the consequences of some of the decisions that this man made once he became a quote-unquote Christian and changed that to the official religion. Now, we read in Scripture that Jesus said, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. You know, in Christianity, you guys, I put some pictures of your elders up here a minute ago. Their job is not to be the big boss. Their job is to care for your souls. That's their job. And I want to tell you, I know a lot of godly men who are elders in the Lord's church. And every one of them has shed tears for their flock. Every one of them has lost sleep at night for their flock. Every one of them has made great sacrifice for the kingdom of God. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's what scriptures teach that we're supposed to be. Those who lead are supposed to be those who serve, who are the ones who put themselves on the line. But that's not the way it was during this period of time. Those leaders during this period of time were the ones who were the big bosses. They were the ones who had the money and made the rules and made everyone else jump when they said jump. And they made everyone do what they told them to do. You know, once power becomes seated in politics with religion, it changes very quickly. Constantine said, that Christianity is going to be the official religion. There was a guy who came after Constantine, a guy named Theodosius, who took it a step further. Theodosius said, I'm going to be a Christian, and so are you. Whether you like it or not, you're going to be a Christian. And not only was it the official religion now, but paganism was outlawed, and everyone was required to become a Christian. Okay, He would take his soldiers into a village and gather up all the people in that village and force them to the river and make everyone march through the river, baptizing them into Christ. That's what happened. Now, let me ask you, if last week there had been an election in Pampa and you had elected someone who said, you know what, Pampa's going to be a Christian town. And as of last Thursday, everyone in this town is required to be a member of this church, this congregation right here. What do you think? Would that be good? You'd have the biggest church in town, right? You'd have to meet in the park. You couldn't meet here. Would that be good? You want to talk about headaches your elders would have. You know, the truth is that's coercion, not conversion. And those are different things. You know what happened? Is exactly what you know would happen here. 
okay, if they're going to force me to be a member of that church, I'll go be a member of that church because I don't want to get killed or taxed higher or something, so I'll do it. But they came in and they brought every kind of corruption and immorality and vice and wickedness with them. They brought that all into the church, the visible church. And this church that had been persecuted for 250 years and stayed pure and people were dedicated and would die well was all of a sudden filled with people who didn't even believe in Jesus. Does that sound like any churches you know of? There are a lot of churches in America filled with a lot of people who don't have any intention of following Jesus. Would it be good to make them all be members, quote-unquote, of this church? No. It would be a horrific thing. Now, I don't know anything much about Theodosius other than this, but I'll tell you, that was a terrible thing to do to Christ's visible church here on this earth. Jesus Christ Himself said this. He said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. The kingdom of God is not on this earth. And time after time after time after time, there have been groups of people who tried to make the kingdom of God here on this earth, and all it does is cause misery and heartache and drive people away from Jesus Christ. It didn't do it. It didn't work. You know, God's people have never been militant. Jesus said, if my kingdom was of this world, we would fight. Did you know New Testament Christians, when they were being persecuted, they didn't fight? They didn't all go get licenses to carry and start packing. That's not the way they dealt with persecution. Because the kingdom is not of this world. And their heart and their attitude was, you kill me, great, I get to go be with Jesus. Not, you better stay away from me or I'll kill you before you hurt me. That wasn't the Christian attitude. Yet that became the attitude in the Roman Empire of people who were outwardly and publicly claiming to be the leaders of Christ. Now, let me ask you this question. Who was Jesus? Who was Jesus of Nazareth? If someone were to ask you that, one of your friends say, you know, I know you're a Christian. Who was Jesus? How would you describe him? What would you say about Jesus? Well, in the early church, during this period of time, there was real controversy about who Jesus actually was. Oddly enough, you wouldn't think that would be the source of controversy, would you? But it was. And as we talk about this, maybe you'll learn that there is some question among people. There was something called the Arian controversy. A guy named Arius said that Jesus was not divine, but that he was like God. He wasn't God, but he was like God. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe Jesus was God? Do you? Amen? I believe Jesus was God. He wasn't just like God. They had a big meeting of all the bishops and leaders of churches, and they all got together in 325 A.D. in Nicaea, and they condemned this man Arius as a heretic, which they should have done because what he was teaching was heresy, and it wasn't true. You know how I know that? Because Scripture tells us that Jesus Christ was the living Son of God. 
Then there was the Apollinarian controversy. The idea with the Apollinarius, Apollinarius was a guy who said Jesus wasn't human. He was God, but he wasn't man. Does that matter? We talked about it a little bit last night. Yes, it matters. John said that a person who denies Jesus came in the flesh is an antichrist. Why? Because if Jesus didn't come in the flesh, He didn't die for your sins. He didn't die for my sins. If He didn't come in the flesh, you can't kill someone who didn't come in the flesh. So they had a big church council and, and they discussed this. And they agreed in Constantinople in 381 A.D. that Jesus was indeed human and Apollinarius was condemned as a heretic, which, well, he should have been because what he was teaching was not true. Then there was the Nestorian controversy. A guy named Nestorius said Jesus was human and deity both separately, and there were two spirits that lived in one body. So here's Jesus bebopping along living his life until he turns 30, and he goes and he gets baptized, and then the Holy Spirit comes down as a dove and lights on him, and now God dwells in his body, and he dwells in his body, and so you have two different beings dwelling in this body, and one of them's God and one of them's not. Do you believe that? They condemned this man as a heretic, which, well, they should have in Ephesus in 431. Eutychian controversy, a guy named Eutychus, and this isn't the guy who fell asleep and fell out of the window in Acts 20. This is 400 years later, okay? This guy said, well, Jesus was human and divine, but the human was absorbed into the divine. My goodness. <laughs> How picky can we get? I mean, that's amazing. Do you think any, any of this really matters? Do you think any of it makes any difference? Who Jesus was? You know, there's a story told about a, an American industrialist whose wife many years ago, 150 years ago or so, went over to Europe on a vacation. And while she was there, she found a diamond that she wanted to buy but it was $75,000. Now, back then, that was a lot of money. You might say, well, that's a lot of money now. <laughs> it was a whole bunch of money back then. But she wired or telegraphed her husband, because she couldn't call him on the phone back then, and she said, hey, I found this diamond, and it's wonderful, and I want to buy it, and that's not the diamond, really. That's the Hope Diamond, which is worth millions of dollars. But... She said, I found this diamond and I want to buy it. And he sent a telegram back to her. And his telegram was this, no, price too high. But when they sent the telegram, the telegraph operator omitted the comma and the telegraph she got was this, no price too high. And she went ahead and bought it. And when she got back to the U.S., he sued the telegraph company and won. You know why? Because that one little squiggle right there completely reversed the meaning of what he said. Now listen, we may talk about things like who Jesus is, and you may go, how could you be so picky? How could they be so technical? Why does it matter? I want you to know it matters who Jesus is. Who Jesus is matters, and it's important. Now, there are people today, every one of those, those 
heresies that I talked to you about, there are people today who believe those things. There are people in this town who claim to be Christian who teach and believe some of those heresies. And it's important that you and I understand who Jesus Christ really is. That was the kind of thing that uh, was a very, very important time or important debate and discussion in the early church. Now, as I told you, one of the things that happened is that there was a lot of corruption that came into the church. And let's go back to our illustration a second ago. If we had made a law that everyone in Pampa was a member of this church now, several of you said, no, you wouldn't like that, right? Okay. You know what I suspect would happen? I suspect that after about six months... Roughly, this group of people would be off meeting by yourselves somewhere, right? Instead of with everyone in the whole town of Pampa. Because your beliefs are different. The worldliness would disgust you. You wouldn't be happy with people openly embracing sin and coming in and sitting on these pews and worshiping with you. Would you be happy with that? No. And you know what happened during this period of time? Is there were still, even in all of this corruption, there were godly, dedicated, faithful men and women who wanted to serve God. There's always been that. And there will always be. If there's persecution in America, that's not going to change the fact that there are people who love Jesus and want to serve Him. That won't change that. And it never did, and it never will. But these people... They were called hermits or monks in monasteries. They lived in monasteries. And they would withdraw themselves from society. And they would go and they would try to be separate from society. You know what? In America, we're already seeing some of that. The homeschool movement in America, you know what that is? That's people trying to get their kids out of the pagan uh, indoctrination of our public schools. And that's people who have strong Christian morality, usually that say, you know what, we want to teach our children differently than what they're being taught out here in the world, and we want to protect our children from that. These people, these hermits and monks, and I know you think about a hermit or a monk, and you think some, some oddball going, oh, 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 you know, and all of this. I'll tell you something. You wouldn't have this if it wasn't for the hermits and the monks. These people would get behind these walls. And I know some of them made ridiculous vows of silence and wouldn't talk for 20 years or would sit on poles and a lot of weird stuff like that. I know there was a lot of weird stuff that went on. Some of them would beat themselves to try to beat the wickedness out of themselves. I'm not defending all of that, but I am saying what you had in these people were a bunch of people that loved God and were trying to do what was right. And they had Bibles, and the only way you got a copy of a Bible is you had to write it down yourself. Now, do you all have a Bible? Shake your heads if you've got a Bible. You got a Bible? Did you have to write that down by hand yourself? Is there anyone here? Raise your hand if you've ever completely written down a copy of the Bible. Anyone? That would be a job, wouldn't it? I mean, a huge job. And these monks, they spent years copying page after page. And you know what? They wanted to make sure they didn't make any errors. So they would go back and count the number of letters 
of each letter on each page. And they would compare every page, the first letter to the first letter, and the last letter to the last letter, and the 50th letter to the 50th letter, to make sure. And almost all of the old manuscripts that we have today of the Bible were manuscripts that were written by these people hiding behind these walls because of the corruption that was brought into the visible public viewing of what was considered the church and Christianity back then. Of course, we know that it was corrupt. But these people made great, great sacrifices so that you and I could have the Word of God today. One of these monks is a guy named Jerome. And Jerome was a Syrian hermit, and Jerome struggled with temptation. He was fighting, he was overwhelmed with the temptations of the flesh. And he believed it was wrong, and he wanted to get it out of his life, so he started studying Hebrew. And he studied and studied Hebrew. Any of you in here know Hebrew? No, one, no Hebrew scholars here? Can you imagine trying to learn Hebrew? He did that to study the Bible, and he had to do that because the Bible wasn't available in their common language. And so you know what he did? He translated the Bible into Latin, which was the common language that was being written or being spoken at that time. Latin. You can still buy a copy of it today. It's called the Latin Vulgate that this guy translated. Listen, that was a big deal to have a... Can you imagine if there were no English Bibles? If the only Bible that existed were an Ebu, I've got an Ebu Bible from going to Nigeria, okay? Can you imagine if the only Bibles were Ebu? Could you read that? I can't read that, and I've been to Nigeria ten times. That would be a problem, wouldn't it? You know what? What he intended for good, the Catholic Church ends up using to keep the Bible out of the hands of people for a thousand years. But he was trying to do good. He was trying to get the Bible in a language people could understand. Another guy, a guy named Benedict. You've heard of Benedictine monks. And you can't really talk about monks without talking about Benedictine. He was an organizational genius. And he took orders of poverty and orders of obedience. And they were very disciplined and very ordered. And even today in the world, there are Benedictine monks who try to follow the order of Benedict. And Benedict was real big on one thing, and that was we need to do what the Bible says. Now, I wouldn't say he understood it all correctly, but I would say his mantra, his belief was we need to do what the Bible says. Do you know anyone who believes that today? You ever heard anyone who believes that? We've got a church full of them right here, don't we? People who believe we need to do what the Bible says. You really can't talk about any of these monks. This guy would be like, if we didn't mention him, it would be like talking about the Dallas Cowboys and never mentioning Roger Staubach. I mean, this guy was the monk of all monks. His name was Augustine, and he is probably the most well-known of all of these fellas that ever lived. Augustine was a brilliant man, but when he was young, he was... Uh, he was a very ungodly person. He had lots of affairs. He uh, had children outside of wedlock. And uh, at one time he went and he heard a, a preacher and was converted. 
and he began the rest of his life studying. And are any of y'all familiar with what we call Calvinism? Have you heard of Calvinism? It's the doctrine of predestination and total hereditary depravity and all. We call that Calvinism because of a guy named John Calvin who wrote some books that made that really popular. But that was all Augustine's idea. Augustine came up with all of that. He was a brilliant scholar and a brilliant writer, and he wrote a book called The City of God, and his idea in that is that Christianity will persevere regardless of political boundaries. And his idea was that we need to have this worldwide kingdom of God here on this earth. And it's not Rome, but we need to establish the church as the kingdom here on this earth. And he has tremendous influence on what happens in the coming years and following this. You know, during this period of time, we talk about the church. During the... the uh, persecuted church period of time as I told you the church was pure the church had one husband and that was Jesus Christ but during this period of time what is called the church was a bigamous church it had two husbands it had Jesus Christ and it had Rome and the public face of Christianity in the world now, when I say that, I'm not talking about the true people who were hiding and living lives and serving Jesus. I'm talking about what the world knew as Christianity. It was corrupt. It was very bigamous. It was married to political power. It was not just married to Jesus Christ. This guy named Damasus, who was bishop of Rome, and the Roman bishop eventually becomes a guy who was considered the father of the church, or the papa, or as we call it, the pope today. Damasus was the first one we have recorded to ever say this about his position as bishop of Rome. He said this, The holy Roman church takes precedence over all other churches because Jesus said so. Now, I've read my Bible a lot. Have you ever read where Jesus said the Roman church takes precedence over all churches? Have you ever read that anywhere in the Bible? You know where he got that? He got it out of the Bible. He took it out of Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus entered into the coast of Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples saying, Whom do men say that I the Son of Man am? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist and some Jeremiah or Elias or one of the prophets. He said, but whom say ye that I am? And Peter stood up and he said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my father, which is in heaven. And unto thee, I give the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I say, well, okay, we all know that, right? On this rock I will build my church. And what this guy Damasus said was, Peter was the first bishop in the church at Rome, and therefore all the other bishops who follow after him are the rock that the church was built on. 
And so the Holy Roman Church takes precedence because Jesus looked at Peter and he said, You're blessed, Peter, and on this rock, on you, I'm going to build my church. Because the name Peter means rock, right? Did you know that? The name Peter means rock. What do you think about that? You think there's any truth in that? Well, there's not truth in that. The word that is used for Peter here is a word that means a tiny pebble, a tiny stone. And the word that Jesus used to, for rock means a huge, like a mountain, like an outcropping, a big rocky outcropping. And literally what he said to Peter in the Greek was this, I say to you that you are a little pebble, but on this huge stone, I'm going to build my church. You know what that huge stone was? The foundation of the church? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It was the confession that Peter made. But you know what? This guy Damasus was clever. He was clever in twisting Scripture. Now, everybody didn't buy it. There was a lot of conflict and a lot of trouble over him saying that. But he was clever. What it took to get this accepted was a guy who came along a little bit after that, a guy by the name of Leo. And here's a, a map showing you where Rome is. Rome was in the north, and you know there's a new capital now over in Constantinople at this period of time. And there were enemies of Rome that were beginning to come in, and Rome, the, the nation of Rome, the empire was crumbling. And the Goths were coming in from the north, and the Visigoths. And you had guys like Attila the Hun who were coming in, and they were taking great areas of territory from the Romans. And they would come in, and they would just destroy the area. And they would kill people, and they would burn the villages, and they would pillage. And they were moving down from the north, and Attila the Hun specifically, his army was coming in, and they had one goal, and that goal was Rome, and they were headed to Rome. And the bishop of the church there in Rome, a guy by the name of Leo, goes out one night all by himself with his translator, and he goes north to Attila the Hun's camp where they were camped. And he demands to see Attila. Now that took some backbone, didn't it? Okay? And he demands to see Attila. And when Attila comes out, he looks at him and he says, You will not attack Rome because we are the city of God. You know what Attila did to him? Nothing. Attila was so impressed by the courage of Leo that they didn't burn Rome. They had 12 days of pillaging. 12 days of stealing, and they didn't kill a soul, and they turned around and went home. Now, why did I tell you that story? Because Leo's the bishop of Rome. He's the one who is claiming after Damasus that he has supremacy in the church. And guess what? Do you think this guy was a hero? You better believe he was a hero. <laughs> he was a hero to everyone who lived in that area. Can you imagine if someone was attacking and killing everyone in America and they get to Pampa and you have Monty says, I'm going to go to, and he goes out there and he faces him down and says, you leave us alone. And they just leaves. You think Monty would be a hero in Pampa? You better believe he would be. And this guy, because of this great act of courage, 
really solidified the power of this, this Roman bishop. Now, I'm going to tell you, there are six things wrong with the papacy, and we're just going to click right through this real quick. One, the Bible tells us only Jesus Christ is head of the church. The Pope is not the head of the church. I know there are a billion people on earth who think he is, but the Bible thinks he's not. The Bible says he isn't. Scriptures say all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. You know who said that? Jesus Christ, because Jesus is the only one with authority. He's the head of the church. Number two, it violates the greatest shall be the least principle. The greatest, we've already talked about this. For he who is least among you will be among you all will be great. The principle is not the greatest is the guy who runs around in the Pope mobile and gives all the orders. That's not Christianity. That's political power. That's not Christianity. It conflicts with New Testament church government. We already talked about this a lot last night. That all the saints in, in Jesus Christ were in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Every church had bishops, deacons, and saints. And there was no structure in the Bible above the local congregation. There wasn't someone in charge of all the churches in Texas. It didn't work that way. There was Leaders in each congregation, and they alone stood to give account to God. Number four, Peter was an elder, not a pope. Don't let anyone ever tell you Peter was the first pope. It's not true. Peter himself said this. There we go. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder. That's what Peter said. Peter said he was an elder. He didn't say he was bishop of Rome. He didn't say he was pope. He just claimed to be a fellow elder. No man is ever called the Petra of the church, that is, the rock of the church. And I say to you that you are Petros, a small pebble, but on this Petra, this large boulder, I will build my church. And finally, number six, there's nothing of apostolic succession in the New Testament. There's no indication that when the apostles died, there were people who would succeed them. In fact, what we find is the opposite. We find instead of listening to men, we're to listen to Jesus Christ. We're to listen to His words, not the words of men who will follow. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. The rock that the church is built on is the rock that Jesus Christ is the Son of of the living God. And we're going to close with this guy right here. His name was Gregory the Great. And he is the first one who was officially recognized throughout all the world as the Pope. He had great charisma. And he, uh, probably the main thing you would know about him, have you ever heard of a Gregorian chant? Have you, oh, oh, hey, oh, oh. Don't laugh at me. That's the best I could do on the spur of the moment. Look them up on YouTube. You can hear Gregorian chants. You'll be thankful that we got to sing How Can I Stop From Singing Your, your, your Name or Your Love, however the words of that song went, instead of Gregorian chants. But he brought Gregorian chants. This guy was, in 590, the very first one who claimed and was able to be recognized worldwide as the one who sits as Christ on earth. The one who can speak for God alone. Now I want to tell you as we close tonight, the problem with all this departure is it gets away from the Bible. I've known your elders here for many years. I think they're very godly men. 
And I think you should emulate their faith. I think you should listen to their counsel. But they don't have the right to speak where God didn't speak. They don't. No man has the right to speak where God didn't speak. No man has the right to depart from what the Scriptures tell us. No matter how practical it may seem at the time. The end result, many years down the road sometimes, sometimes centuries down the road, the end result is going to be bad. It's always going to be bad when we depart from Scripture. That's why Jesus said, If you continue in my word, then you're my disciples indeed. Now I want to tell you, during all this period of time that was ugly, during all this period of time where there was all kinds of corruption in the church, there were always faithful men and women who sought to serve God. And I'll tell you, no matter what happens in America, there will be faithful men and women who will give their lives to serve God. There will be. The question is, will you be one of those? Will you be one who's willing to give your life to serve Jesus? One who's willing, no matter the cost, to do just what the Bible says and nothing different? I hope you are. I call you to that. That's the big message of all of this history, is that God's Word is never changing. And that when we disobey God's Word, horrible things like this happen. And when we obey God's Word, wonderful things happen. Are you a part of His kingdom? Have you been baptized into Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? I hope you are. I hope you have. If you haven't, we give you that opportunity to tonight. And if you have and you go, you know what? I hadn't been living in a way that really is what God would want me to do. You can change that today. You don't have to wait for any Sunday or any special time. You can change that right now. You can be willing to take that stand. If the church can help you in any way, we offer this song of invitation if you'll make your need known while we stand and sing.